You'll be opening your Bibles to the 24th chapter of the book of Isaiah. 24th chapter of the book of Isaiah. Were you paying attention this morning to the sermon? If you were paying attention this morning to the sermon, you should not have any problems with what we're going to talk about today because the sermon dovetails really well. And Neil and I didn't get together on that, but it's just one of those, one of those serendipitous moments that, that happens for, um, from time to time. So we're about a quarter or a third of the way through the book of Isaiah. And the book of Isaiah to this point has talked about several things that are overarching general themes that are, well, that cross-cut every book of the Bible. Now, what are some of those themes? There is the theme of a nation and its rise and its fall. There is the juxtaposition of that nation to the individual. A nation can sin against God. And the evidence is overwhelming in the Bible that that happens. The individual can sin and fall. The evidence for that is all through the Bible. So what we are seeing in the book of Isaiah is, again, that conflict between a nation and an individual, between the nation of Judah, the nation of Israel, the Hebrew nation. But that nation is made up of individuals. And those individuals are led by kings who are both good and evil. And that, again, cross-cuts the entire Bible. That is the theme of mankind, humankind, down through the ages. And so as Isaiah looks to the future, as he looks to prophesy, given the message that God has put on his tongue, we see this struggle between a nation that rises and a nation that falls and then rises again. Look at the people of God. Look at the Hebrew nation. How many times in the book of Joshua and Judges did the the nation of Israel fall, were taken into captivity, and repented, and God restored them? It 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 is a theme that occurs time after time after time in the Bible, and especially in the book of Isaiah. And so what we've seen in the opening chapters of the book of Isaiah is we've seen the prophet look to these various nation-states. He's looked to the fact that they will rise and they will trouble the house of Israel. But they will fall. They will fall to another nation who will rise and trouble the children of Israel. Because that's a theme of the Bible, just as the theme of good versus evil in the sermon today. So if we look at the Bible as a whole, it is a struggle between order and chaos. The devil brought chaos into the world in Genesis 3. He introduced chaos into this world. And we live in a chaotic world. The struggle between good and evil, the struggle between a nation's 
identity, whether it's a nation founded for God or a nation founded in evil, cross-cuts history. Just as individuals struggle with good versus evil in your everyday life, you are confronted with decisions that you have to make. Choices between good and evil. Questions that you ask. Why do the rich prosper? Why do evil men ascend? Why is there an ascendancy of evil? Where is God? And so as Isaiah begins this next third of the book, he has talked about the rise of nations. He's talked about the coming uh, principal groups that are going to rise. And we looked at that in, in, in chapters 13 through 23. Now, in chapter 24 through chapter 28, he's going to talk about the world in general. He's going to talk about the destruction of the world. He's going to talk about that in chapter 24. But then in chapters 25 and 26 and 27, he's going to talk about a glorious rebirth and the establishment of the church. A kingdom to which there will be no end. But that is constructed, this kingdom is constructed of individuals who are flawed, who are sinful individuals. But by the grace of God can accomplish great things in his name. And that's another theme that we see throughout the Bible. When man turns to God, their success When man turns to other men or man turns to an earthly kingdom, there's always failure. So with God, all things are possible. And so what we see in the 25th through the 27th chapter is we see this establishment of Christ's kingdom. And what we see is the prediction of this ingathering that will take place. So as we go through this, these themes that we've talked about in this first five minutes should be ever on your mind because these are the themes of these chapters. These are the things that we're looking toward when we see these. And so as we turn to chapter 24, we begin by seeing that the Lord is going to do something. He's going to do something to the earth. And the earth in this instance is going to be representative of not only the physical earth, but also the earth that is inhabited by man. So the kingdoms of man are going to rise up and these kingdoms are going to fall. And that's been a constant theme. So that should be nothing that's surprising. So as we begin the 24th chapter in the first 12 verses, we'll look at, Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and he makes it waste. Let me turn to another. Let me turn to another version. He distorts the surface and he scatters abroad its inhabitants. And so it shall be. As with the people, so with the priest. As with the servant, so with the master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As the creditor, so with the debtor. No one escapes. No one escapes. When judgment comes to the earth, when judgment comes to the nations, no one escapes. The Lord, the land shall be entirely emptied and utterly plundered. For the Lord has spoken this word. 
The earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes and fades away. The haughty people of the earth languish. The earth is defiled under its inhabitants because they have done three things. Note those three things. Those three things that God will charge the people with. These three things that they've done. First of all, they have transgressed the laws. Secondly, they have changed the ordinances. They have broken the everlasting covenant. All right? So, in the first place, there has been a total disregard. They've transgressed the laws. They've disregarded God's spoken and revealed word. They've made it of no avail. They've made it of no account. He has revealed to them in his law how he wants them to live, how he wants them to maintain themselves, how he wants them to conduct themselves in front of other people who are not of the same lineage. In this case, they are not of the Hebrew nation. They are Gentiles, how they are supposed to conduct themselves. And the people have deliberately disobeyed. And because of this, they will be destroyed. Their requirements for obedience have been left unfulfilled. Secondly, they have changed the ordinances. The Jewish people were very subtle in the ways that they changed and they added to God's laws. God has made it very clear. You are not to add to or you are not to take from his law. When you plow, you are to turn neither to the left or the right. You are not to look back. Always look forward. And the people have disregarded that. If we read in the book of Matthew, the gospel account of Matthew, Jesus is continually telling these people, this is not what God has said to do. They've gone way beyond the law. They've added to the covenant of of God. They've added to the laws. And by by doing so... They appear to keep the law, but they don't. Now, how do we translate this to to our world today? The denominational world has God's revealed word. But they take the word, and they twist it, and they turn it, and they skew it, and they make it say something it doesn't say, and their destruction is nigh. Because they have disregarded the spoken word of God, the written word of God, through whom he speaks to us through his son. And they have changed the law. They have changed the they have changed what God has said. They've changed the ordinances. And finally, the most basic covenant that God has made with man, they have broken. Look at Psalm 34, verses 15 and 16. It's been disregarded. It's been changed. It's been turned away from. The people of God would do well in that age as well as this age to look to see whether they are not guilty of breaking that everlasting covenant. To him that knows to do good and does it not to him it is sin. So they have disregarded his word. They have transgressed the laws. They've broken the everlasting covenant. And verse 6 says, there's a price to be paid. Therefore, 
verse 6. Therefore, based on everything that's gone before this, the curse has devoured the earth. Those who dwell in it are desolate. The inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men are left. The new wine fails. The vine languishes. All through these chapters, when God speaks through Isaiah about a vine, it is the same vine that he talks about with regard to how he speaks of a vine in the New Testament. The vine is the vine the vine are the people of God. And so the vine languishes. All merry hearted will sigh. The mirth of the tambourine ceases. The noise of the jubilant ends. The joy of the harp ceases. They shall not drink wine with a song. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. And so there is a calamity. There is a calamity that attends our disobedience. And so we see that throughout this. We see that this calamity that attends our disobedience. The city is desolate. The gate is stricken with destruction, emptiness, waste, desolation, inaccessibility, degradation. Everything is turned upside down. The higher ends are employed to meet baser needs. Everything is defiled. Everything is spoiled. The land fades away. The land languishes. The city is confused, is broken down, verse 10. Every house is shut up so that none may go in. There is a completeness and a finality to the destruction that occurs. The lesson here is for us to beware of this moral and spiritual decline and to seek and find God and repent of our ways and of our nation's ways. And what will happen? What will happen as a result of that? Well, It says in verse 13, when it shall be thus in the midst of the land among the people, it shall be like the shaking of an olive tree, like the gleaning of grapes when the vineyard, when the vintage is done. What we see here is that God will temper his judgment with mercy. Watch, there is a cry. They shall lift up their voices, verse 14. They will lift up their voices. They will sing for the majesty of the Lord. They shall cry aloud from the sea. Therefore, glorify the Lord in the dawning light. The olive tree that brings forth its fruit. The grapes that are gathered at the time of the pressing of the vineyards. Everything will not be taken. We've seen this again and again and again. We've seen all this. Although there is destruction, there is always a remnant. There is always a remnant that is left. And because of this remnant, they cry out. They lift up their voices. They sing. They glorify God. The name of the Lord God of Israel is is heard in the coastlands of the sea. From the ends of the earth, we have heard their songs. Glory to the righteous. But Isaiah says, I am ruined. I am ruined. Woe is me. The treacherous dealers have dealt treacherously. Indeed, the treacherous dealers have dealt very treacherously. So from the lips of those in the remnant, from the lips of those who are still a part of God's family, a part of this this remnant that remains, they are triumphant. They know that God will be glorified, and they know that he will be in his holy temple. 
and they raise their voices in praise and in honor to God. But what about, what about the remnant? Verses 17 through 22, Isaiah talks about the, 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 the roots of the transgression or the fruits of this transgression. In verse 17, he says, fear and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitants of the earth. These people are impoverished. The 20th verse is the most key. The transgression thereof shall be heavy upon them. It will fall and shall not rise. So he compares the earth again to these empires, to these people who rise up. They will flee from the noise and they will fall into a pit. And they will come up out of the midst of the pit and they'll be caught in a snare. Verse 18. The windows are on high that are open. The foundations are shaken. That's very reminiscent of the, of the language that's used in uh, the account of Noah and the flood. The foundations are broken up. They're shaken. Uh, the windows of heaven will open up. Destruction is coming. And so the earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. The earth is shaking, ex- shaken exceedingly, verse 19. This destruction is coming to those who have been treacherous and dealt with others treacherously. Or, in fact, he says, very treacherously. In that day, it will come to pass, verse 21. Or in verse 20, the earth will reel and f- to and fro like a drunkard. And we've all seen images of, of someone who's intoxicated or they're, they've lost their, their balance, their sensibilities due to alcohol or drugs or whatever. And that's what he's talking about. They are, they are so, they are so impoverished at this point. They are so deluded at this point that they will stumble about like a drunk man. And they shall totter like a hut. Transgression shall be heavy upon them. They will fall and not rise again. Shall come to pass in that day, verse 21, that the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones. The proud and the exalted will be humbled. The humble shall be exalted. God has promised that. They will be gathered together as prisoners or gathered in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison and many days they will be punished. The moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his elders gloriously. So what we see here, we see those five, those five fruits toward the end of the chapter, those five fruits of transgression. If when man or a nation transgresses God, they pay for it by being impoverished, famine, earthquake. They're deluded. They're full of treachery. He'll talk in a later chapter, in the next chapter, He'll talk about a veil that is over their eyes. So they're deluded from seeing the truth. They can't escape. The earth itself is agitated. The foundations are broken. It reels to and fro. It oppresses and crushes. And it imprisons in the final verses there. He looks at the imprisonment. And they will be shut up in prison. And there is no dungeon so deep, no pit as hideous as the pit of sin. The prison that men impoverish or enslave themselves into, that they fall into. But as we move to chapter 25, we see a change. There is a change when you read this, when you read chapter 24, and then you go immediately to chapters 25 and 26, you see in the very first verse of both of these chapters that there's there's a change in tenor. Of Isaiah's voice when he speaks these words. 
In chapter 25, he begins with song, a song of praise, rejoicing in God. Look at what he rejoices in God because of. And these are the things that, that Neil was mentioning this morning. Oh, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. Why? Why? Why does Isaiah lift his voice in praise to God? You have done wonderful things. The whole tenor of his, of his speaking changes from 24 to 25. And it's palpable. It's a palpable change. Your counsels are of old, are faithfulness and truth. So you look at your life as compared to that of the tenets that he brings here in, in, in conjunction with those tenets of God's. Faithfulness. Are you faithful to God? Do you live a life that is surrounded or encapsulated with truth? Or do you live a lie? Does your heart, does your mind continually have praise on your lips for God? Everywhere you go, everything you do, everyone you interact with, is there praise continually on your lips? And then Isaiah looks around him and he says, you've made this city a ruin, a forfeited, a fortified city is a ruin, a place of foreigners to be a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. He's looking at all of these kingdoms, all of these people that have, all these, 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 uh, these empires that have risen and fallen. And yet God is constant. There is a constancy with God. There's a constancy in his faithfulness. There is a constancy that you can rely on him to be faithful, to be true. It is his nature. And that is not, that is not something that you find in the kingdoms of men. You have made a city a ruin, a fortified city a ruin, a palace of foreigners to be a city no more. Babylon is gone we don't remember Babylon except in history books. We don't remember the Assyrians. We don't remember the Medes and the Persians. We don't remember any of these except as subtext and footnotes in history. But we remember God because he is constant. He is faithful and he is true. Therefore, the strong people will glorify you. The city of terrible nations will fear you. For you have been a strength to the poor a strength to the needy in their distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat, a blast from the, from, a blast from the terrible ones in a storm against a wall. How many times have we looked at our lives in conjunction with what Isaiah is saying and say, all glory to God, praise be to God, you are my God and I will exalt you because you have been a strength to me, you have been there as a strong bulwark, as a wall for me when the storms of life come. And so we look at God's abiding faithfulness. The counsels are of old. God's faithfulness has always been and always will be. The counsel of the Lord stands forever and the thoughts of his heart to all generations. Heaven and earth may pass away, but God's promises will never pass away, James 1.17 and Hebrews 13.8. We can lean with all of our weight on his promises and the hope that he puts forth in his divine word. And we will find in that rest 
that we are leaning on an immovable rock, one that will never be shaken, one that will never fall into ruin, one that will never face all of the things that he's talked about here, the desolation, the destruction. Daniel says of his kingdom, there will be no end. And we can rest in that faithfulness. We can also rest in his righteousness in verses 2 and verse 5. You will reduce the noise of aliens as heat in a dry place, as heat in the shadow of a cloud. The song of the terrible ones will be, will be diminished. As I, and I, as I was reading this, I was out in the, in the yard the first part of last week, and I was doing something in the garden, and there was, there was, the sun was out, and it was just beating down on me. And I, I'm not ready for summer. I'm not, I'm not a fan of summer. I'm sorry. I like the fall. I love the winter. But I don't like the summer. It's just too hot. I can't, I can't abide it. But then there was that cloud that came while I was working outside. And that cloud came over me, and there was a cooling, a breeze that came with that. And I stopped and I thought about this because I'd already read this. And I thought about that's what God does. When you're in the heat of some problem, when you're in the midst of some struggle, there's comfort. There's that cloud that comes with that cool breeze that comforts you and and it it eases your tension. It eases your heart. And in verse 4, we look at his divine compassion. You know, the the storms may rage about us individually or familially or as a nation. We struggle with these storms that come around, but God's faithfulness and his righteousness will keep this remnant this church of Christ, this remnant of his people, this remnant of the saved. God will always be there for us. He's told us that I'll never forsake you. I'll never leave you. I'll lift you up. But you have to be obedient to me. And so we see his faithfulness. We see his righteousness. We see his divine compassion, a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy, a shadow from the heat, a cloud that shelters us in scorching heat. All of these things, he's consistent and constant in his attitude toward us. And so we see as we move along through this that, that and in the mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all his people. Now, start really paying attention to this in verse 6 as we move down through this you're going to begin to see something that is going to be very familiar to you and I'm going to ask you what that is and so listen as we read and then we'll talk about it the mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces a feast of wine on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wine on the lees. And he will destroy on the mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces The rebuke of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For on this mountain the hand of the Lord will rest. 
And Moab shall be trampled down under him as straw is trampled down for the refuse heap. And he will spread out his hands in the midst as a swimmer reaches out to swim. He will bring down their pride together with the trickery of his hands. The fortress of the high fort of your walls he will bring down. He will lay it low and he will bring it to the ground down into the dust. So what are we talking about here from verse 6 through the end of the chapter? What are we talking about in that day? Not only the church, but certainly the church. He's going to speak more about the church in the next chapter. But what's he talking about here? You've heard these verses before. He will swallow up death forever. He will take away, he will wipe away all tears. What are we talking about? Judgment. Judgment has come to the world. Judgment has come to these nations. Judgment will come to man. And this is the judgment day. In that day. In that day. All those who have done good, Second Thessalonians, will rise to a newness of life. Will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. What will happen to the wicked? What will happen to the evil? Their walls will be cast down. The lie that they have lived will be destroyed and they will face judgment. He's going to make a feast. What does the what does the New Testament talk about with regard to a feast that's coming? There's going to be a feast for all of those who have lived righteous lives, who have been who have who have had God and Christ as a part of their lives, who are who are saved, who have been obedient to God, they're going to they're going to eat, they're going to drink, there's going to be a feast. Now not, it's not a literal feast. Isaiah has to encapsulate what God is talking about as prophecy. He has to encapsulate this in things that people can understand. This is like streets paved with gold. You have to remember in the book of Revelation, God was talking to a people who have been persecuted, who are in the midst of grievous persecutions. People who are being dipped in wax and then lit like candles to light the Appian Way for Nero's chariots. People who are being fed to lions, people who are being fed to wild animals, who are being forced to fight for their lives. These people are being persecuted. Persecution like we've never seen, like we've never been a part of. But God has said, because you have remained faithful, you are going to be attended at a feast, at the feast of the bridegroom of Christ. or the, Yeah, the bridegroom of Christ, the bride of Christ. Always feasting follows. Uh, that's a great point. Feasting always follows victory. Don't see many feasts after you're, after you're defeated. Your team is on the losing end of the Super Bowl. There's not much celebration that's going on. And so there's going to be a feast. All the best. He's going to destroy the mountain, the surface of the covering cast over the people and the veil that was spread. There's going to be, there's going to be a spiritual revival. There's going to be nourishment. There's going to be strength. The divine provisions for our souls will be met. That's God's promise. God has promised a spiritual revival that we could, that the world can be a part of. But you know as well as I do that the world is not going to, they're not all going to take advantage of it. But we have to at least speak to them. We have to at least ask them. We have to at least encourage them to do that. If they spit in our faces, if they look at us, if they curse us, if they deride us, that's fine. That's fine. 
Don't fear the one. Don't fear the man who can kill you. That's all he can do to you. Fear the one who can not only kill you, but destroy you and send your body to hell. Fear him. All we have to do for them to be a part of this spiritual revival. You know, the book of Proverbs says, Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish. We have a message for those who are ready to perish. And all we have to do is get out there and provide that message to them. If they reject it and they perish, it's not on us. It's not on us unless we haven't tried. God provides spiritual food. He provides our nourishment. He provides all of the things that we need. He is, in fact, uh, through Christ, he is the what? He is the bread of life. What did he tell the woman at the, at, the, at the well? He said, if you drink of the water that I provide, what? You'll never thirst. And I was out the other, I was out the other day working out in the garden. I got thirsty. I mean, it was hot. That cloud didn't last the whole time. It just lasted for a few minutes. But I got thirsty. And I get dehydrated. But there's water if, if which we'll drink of that water. We'll never thirst. We'll never be hungry. God provides all these things. He provides strength. You know, look at the look at the food that he's providing. A feast of fat things full of marrow. That which is ample not only to sustain life, to but to make us stronger. There's joy in this. Feasting and joy in victory. Feasting and joy knowing that our salvation is nigh. Spiritual veils. It talks in verse 7 about a veil. What is a veil used to do? Talk about that for a second. What does a person use a veil for? Ladies, guys don't have much experience with veils. Okay? Covers up generally, what does it cover? Usually covers your face. So he's using the analogy of a veil here to say that something is hidden. Something's covered. Do you see as well when you have a veil on as when you don't have a veil on? You see a lot better, right? Your view is unobstructed. The veil is not there. There was a veil put over people to not see the truth because their hearts were not right. God says, I'm going to take away this veil. And mainly, I think here he's talking to the Gentiles. The Gentiles had a veil that they couldn't see the truth of God. And so this spiritual veil, this obstruction, this thing that people sometimes use for modesty, is often inconvenient and it's unsightly. And in our modern world, it's been abused. It's been used for purposes that it's not meant. A veil has some sort of, it more often than not has a moral significance. It's something that stops something else. So if you think of a veil physically, it stops you from being able to view someone's whole face because they've got a veil over them. But spiritually, what does a veil do? A veil blocks someone from seeing something. Oftentimes, if not more often than not, it's the truth. Denominational, denominationalism today is a veil. Is it not? It blocks 
people from seeing the truth. It takes the truth of God and it filters it to where you can't see the pure truth of God. It's obstructed. It's a, it's a, it's the irrational, it's the superstitious, it's the, the taking the scriptures out of context and making them pretext. It renders something just a massive error. A veil also is prejudice. If you're blinded to someone because of their nationality or their skin color or whatever, if you're blinded to them, you tend to judge, do you not? Often people cannot see through what we call or what I call the veil of prejudice. There's a veil of intellectual pride. There's a veil of worldliness. The interests, the occupations, the gratifications of this world sometimes take on a level of importance that veils us from the truth, that keeps the truth hidden from us. God will destroy these veils. God will take all these veils away, and he will, in that day, judge the world. He will swallow up death forever. The last enemy to be conquered is is death, and Christ has done that. Christ has conquered death. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from their faces. This is... This is a direct, this is referred to directly in the book of Revelation. God shall wipe away all tears. And I've often thought, why? Why would he wipe away all tears? It's an intriguing thought. Why would God wipe away all tears? We cry when we're sad, we cry when we're grieving, we cry when we're happy. So why is it God's going to wipe away all tears? There's no more sadness. There's no more sickness. There's no more death. No more pain. We don't have to worry about all the things that, for a lot of you young people in here, you haven't experienced it yet, but Arthur's coming to live at your house someday. For some of us, Arthur has taken up permanent residence. I have to go to the doctor tomorrow. I have a... I have a I have an arthritic joint that's just given me no amount of, I can't, I, I shake hands, but it's painful. But all those things will be gone someday. But that's not why we're, but that's not why he's going to wipe away all tears. I mean, I'd cry for joy if I didn't have to deal with rheumatoid arthritis anymore. I, I'd cry with joy if I didn't have to deal with all the ailments of getting older. Wouldn't you? Someday those tears will be gone. You won't have to cry. We're going to be in heaven. But that, I think, for the wiping away of all tears, there are many people in our lives that we come in contact with every day that we know are not Christians. They don't have that blessed hope. They don't have that blessed promise. They don't have the anticipation of that feast that's coming. They don't have that. We have relatives. We have relatives that are not members of the church. And that makes me sad. And we know if they don't come to an understanding of God, if they don't set aside their pride, if they don't set aside all of the things that are veiling them from responding to Christ, they're going to be lost. And that causes me to be sad. And there's going to be 
and often is at the graveside weeping for those who have died in an unsaved state. But God's going to wipe away all those tears. There's nothing we can do about it. It's over. The end has come. God has judged. And he'll wipe away those tears. The rebuke of, our, of the people, all of the, all of the slings and the arrows, the, the pain that you've suffered because you've tried to talk to someone of Christ, about Christ and they've rejected you and they've hurt your feelings and they've called you names and they've said things to you that you wouldn't say to a dog. All because you're a Christian. All because you're just trying to bring them this good message, this gospel of hope. It says here, the rebuke of his people he will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. If God said it, you can take it to the bank. If he said it, it'll be so. And so the application here certainly is to the church of Christ. The application here certainly is to the saved uh, down through the years, all of those who've remained faithful to God. This is what Isaiah is saying you have, you have to anticipate. Don't give up hope. You see destruction all around you. You see, you see a world that's falling down around your, around your, your, your whole body, your whole world, everything's falling down nationally. Don't give up hope. There's an eternity of good things that are coming to, the, to those who are uh, called according to his name. And so as he moves on from chapter 25 into chapter 26, notice he continues the thought. Chapter 26, verse 1. In that day, the song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwark. Open the gates. The righteous will come in. There's a place and there's a time that we're headed toward that eternity with God. It's a joyous time, and we should be singing praises to God for the faith, for the son that he sent to die for us. And so next week, we'll keep on this pace. We'll keep, uh, we'll keep talking about chapter 26 and what uh, the Lord will bring to those who have been called according to his purpose. Thank you.